Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, Mike. Mr. Wakeman, thank you so much for joining That's me today. That's all right, Mr. Wakeman. I must be getting old. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's <laughs> all right. Uh, I didn't mean to. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, this is called the Grumpy Old Rockstar Tour, so I, you kind of you kind of put it on the, the marquee there, you know? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, you're going to be at the Wilbur here in Boston on uh, Monday the 23rd. And I, I have to say, it's uh, great to talk to you. You are the man, not only did I enjoy the music of Yes, but you are the man who played piano on my favorite David Bowie song, Life on Mars. And yeah, it was one of, my, one of my happiest memories doing that. I wanted to ask you, uh, before we get into your show and everything, um, when you first, because you also worked on Space Oddity, is, is that correct? I did, yeah. So when, I, worked, I worked on quite a few tracks before Hunky Dory as well. So, I worked on uh, Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud and Memory of a Free Festival, a few other pieces, yeah. So when you first met David Bowie and worked with David Bowie, did you realize that this, this guy is something special? Because he's very, you know, obviously very different for that time. Yeah, he was. I mean, I, I knew him. Uh, I first met him in 1968. He was in uh, the great producer, Denny Cordell's office, along with uh, Tony Visconti and Gus Dudge and two other great, great producers. Uh, I, I was up there doing some some demo sessions for 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 somebody. This would have been nineteen yes, nineteen sixty eight, and uh, I met him there. And I, I'd known him before as Davy Jones, which was his proper name. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he was very much a singer songwriter folk singer, and he was one of the real classics of uh, of being a great wordsmith and lyricist. And even back then, he just wrote stories. All his songs had a story. They had a meaning. They weren't just, uh, you know, sort of words sort of slung together. And uh, he changed his name obviously because of the of the monkeys, because there already was a Davy Jones. <laughs> so so it couldn't be two. So he changed it to David Bowie. And in 1969, um, I, I, he asked me if I'd go along. He was recording Space Oddity. Uh, if I would do the uh, the Mellotron parts and things on it, and I went, Yeah, I'd love to. So I went along and did the uh, the Mellotron on Space Oddity. Um, you know, we got chatting, and, and he said, uh, uh, "Listen, um, I've heard some of your piano playing. I'd love you to do some piano with me. Would you fancy doing that?" I said, "Yeah." So he, he, I got booked by him to do some more stuff with him. But the interesting thing was that actual day we finished recording Space Oddity. I mean, he had mixed it just a bit, and there was a. It was originally released on the Philips label, and. Uh, there was a, uh, an A&R man or representative from Philips who was there who said to David, uh, when can I have the finished mix? And David said, well, um, it might be a little bit longer because we're mixing it in stereo. Uh, this was early 1969. And he went, what? He <laughs> said, we're mixing the single in stereo. And the guy, he said, nobody, nobody mixes singles in stereo. They're all mono. And David said, this one's going to be stereo. And he said, well, uh, no, we want it mono. And David said, 
you're going to have it in stereo because sooner or later all singles will be in stereo. Right. And he said, well, no, we'll have this one in mono. <laughs> and David said, well, you won't have it then. And he said, well, you've got to give it to us. David said, well, I'm not. He said, uh, unless I get uh, assurance that it's going to be released as a stereo single. And the guy said, well, it'll be the first stereo single. And David said, well, there you go. And it was, and it came out as the first stereo single. And David said to me, if you believe in something, he said, you must run with it all the time. He said, he said because at the end of the day, uh, you, you, either, you, you either rise or fall you know, by your own choices and your own decisions. He said, and I always decided this was going to be a stereo single, and it will. And I thought, then, hey, this is something to learn from. Yeah. You know, stick with what you believe in. You know, and, uh, and we just became, you know, really good friends over the years. And I did, uh, as you know, um, uh, Hunky Dory with him, which was just a great album to oh, do. Yeah. I, I, I sat around his house. He used to live in Kent in, in southern England. And uh, I was in the house and he had a beautiful grand piano. And I sat there. He sat with his acoustic guitar and we ran through the songs. And it was just one after the other, these fantastic songs. And uh, it was just it was just great to work with. He was the most professional person I'd ever worked with, both in the studio and out of the studio. And uh, it was fantastic because he hated um, could have what he called could haves. You know, if he said to somebody, you know, I've uh, you know I've recorded this. I'm making this up now. But if he said, <laughs> oh, I've, reco- I've recorded this this song on a boat in the middle of the river, uh, and if somebody said, well, I could have done that, and he go, why didn't you then? Right, and they go. Well, we didn't. He said, you know, if, if you could have, you should have. Yeah. So he, he hated. He hated could have, and and every time I heard somebody say in his presence, oh, I could have done that. I thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> and he, he would lay it, and quite rightly so too. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty much that was his. You could say that was his career. There were no could haves. You know. No, you're right. He was. Um, I mean, I got so much advice from him over the. Over the years, it was uh, it was all good, all, all good stuff, and you know it was, and so much of it revolved around believing in yourself. Now, the, through your vast musical experience, is that did you adhere to that most of most of uh, in your career? Like, I'm going to fight for every idea I had, even when you were in Yes or in the Straubs or yeah in, in, in general I did. if I really believed in it strongly enough I would I would fight for it and uh, and if if it was if it was not going to work and I didn't like the way so I, I would you know I, I could happily walk away without offending anybody and go you know I this is not I, I can't give anything to this or I you know because all music is give and take right. you've got to have a mixture and if there's some music you can't give to it then you you have to walk away. Likewise, if you're taking more than you can, um, uh, sorry, if you're giving more than you can take, then you've got to start rethinking that again as well. But David, David never wasted time in the studio. I remember talking to him once uh, in in Switzerland. We both lived in Switzerland for for about four or five years, and we used to meet at this little club called the Museum Club, and we were talking about studio time, and he hated studio time being wasted. If we were in working on a song, for example, and, it, and after about two hours, it, <clears throat> it wasn't happening, he'd go, okay, we'll move on. And his argument was, we're moving on because there's obviously something wrong 
with the song that needs to be looked at. It could be a little thing, it could be a big thing, but I need to go away and look at it, not waste time in the studio. And invariably we'd come back, you know, some days later, and he'd go, right, okay, we're going to do that again, this is, what, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. And he'd be spot on right. And he always also said, he said at the moment, you know, he said, we're so also lucky, we've got, you know, a lot of t- a, a time given us to us in studios, which is really expensive. But there may become a day when we may not have the money for that studio time. And he said, I don't want to ever, nor should you, look back and go, oh, I'd love to have that studio time now, but I can't afford it. Yeah. I, wish I, I wish I hadn't gone you know, out for two days and taken two days out. Well, you're, in your show, you do, or are you still doing in this show uh, Life on Mars? Are you still yeah, performing that? Yeah, I do Life on Mars, and sometimes I'll, I'll throw in Space Odyssey in that as well. Yeah, because it's an important part of my life. And you also do uh, a few Beatles songs, and you know, so many stories from so many musicians, successful otherwise, or otherwise, um, always say that when they first heard the Beatles, it flicked a switch in their head. And was, was that was that experience like that yeah. for you? It, it, well, I mean, it was. They were just. Uh, they just wrote great songs, and, and, and great songs that are very adaptable. If you've got great melodies, then you can do a lot of things with with, with Beatles stuff. You can play around with it, as, as, as has happened over the years. I mean, I can remember 1968, I think it was, uh, the first Deep Purple album, Shades of Deep Purple. And they they did the Beatles' help on it. And it was just a fantastic version. Some great sounds that, that John Lord got out of the organ. And John and I became great friends in later years. And I asked him about that. And he just said, it's just such a great adaptable song. And, and it was interesting because uh, Help, uh, John Lennon wrote it as a, as a ballad. It was meant to be a slow ballad, not mm. a pop song. But it, got, it became a pop song, really, because of the, of the film. Wow. Uh, but it wasn't how it was originally written. And you can take most Beatles songs. They've all got great melodies, often very simple uh, and not that long, which means that you can develop them and, and really play around with them. Uh, I mean, Paul and, uh, and John in particular <clears throat> really had a great art of, of melody writing. And, and so did George, although he yeah. was not nowhere near as prolific as... Um, uh, as as John and Paul, he was he was still when he wrote he wrote some great great melodies. I mean I, I mean I was lucky enough to spend time both with uh, with with John and also with George talking about the, their music. So uh, you know it was it was nice when I came to do uh, variations on some of their songs to actually know that I'd got some sort of first hand experience with talking to them. Well, I guess it's you know you hear it a lot. Like if if it's a good song, then not only will it last forever, but you can always recognize oh. the greatness in it, no matter you know. That's true, and also the great thing about the Beatles songs, um, you know that if you just hear the music and don't hear the the lyrics and the and the song being sung, you know what it is. Yeah, yeah, and that is that is really uh, what makes a, a great great song if you if you can recognize it without actually hearing the song being sung and they were past masters of that now i want to talk to you a little bit about your your time in yes well you you spent time in yes you left uh you would come back back and forth yeah <laughs> <laughs> into the band and, and they kind of are still going on and and here and there um 
What what was the the most? I mean, Yes did some really amazing pieces of work, and they really you know when especially with you, and then they really stretched out. You know, they were the whole album side song guys, and yeah. Um, what was some of, the, or maybe one of the, if you can remember, one of the most challenging pieces of music that you had to record with Yes? Well, certainly on Close to the Edge, the Close to the Edge track was really um, that was very challenging because. That was still a period of time where the musician was ahead of technology. So to try and create the things you wanted to create, you couldn't just you know, find a keyboard or a button to press that would do it for you. I mean, just what we used to lovingly call the sparkle tape at the beginning, uh, that took about three weeks to record. Oh. We went out and record, recorded birds, little bells, we, the wind, water, waves, and just mixed it all together to make uh, the, uh, a giant loop tape to do that. Tape, sparkle tape for the beginning of the track. I mean, nowadays you could do that in, well, probably 20 seconds. With a phone. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, it's you're, crazy. Yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> you know, so that was that was challenging. Other challenging thing, there was a, 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 we always tried to, you know, to, we had ideas we wanted to do, then we'd have to sit down and go, well, how can we do that? Uh, I mean, putting the, the church organ on um, uh, close to the edge, I mean, that, that was pretty pretty difficult because the only way we could do it was I went off to a, a big church in London, St. Giles in Cripplegate in, in East London. And uh we recorded the organ uh on um on a Revox because that was all we could all we could do really. Right. It was portable to do it. Took it back and just flew it into the track and we did and of course you've got all sorts of latency and things going on. So to line it up and do it I mean that that, that was a, a good day's job alone, just just doing that. And then you move on just a couple of years to, to 1976, and we did uh, tracks like Awaken. Mm. Uh, and again, we wanted to do the church organ again, and we found a lovely church in Vevey, just down along from Montreux. And we said to the the engineer John Timperley, "Well, what we'll do, we'll, we'll take a, a Revox or something down, and we'll." We'll record it and then and then bring it back and then. But he went, no need to do that. He said, we'll record it down the telephone. <laughs> and we went, what? Now this is 1976. Yeah. He said, yeah. He said Switzerland. He said you've got to remember here. He he said they've got the, the greatest hi-fi cabling and lines about six foot under the ground in case of of nuclear war and or whatever. He said, and you can rent those lines if you want. Wow. And he said, and we can bring them straight into the studio. So this was 1976, and so I, I sat in, in the church nine miles away from the studio. We had, uh, and this, this is really early days of setting up a little video link, so I could see, uh, I could see Alan in the studio who was, who was on drums, who was counting things in. And I sat in the church, and I did the organ for Parallels and for uh, Awaken, live down the telephone lines to the studio. God, you know, I mean, it was just ph- phenomenal. It, uh, it's mean, so it was, it's so commonplace now, but for the time and nineteen seventy six. Yeah, I mean, that's like space. You're you're talking space age stuff back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you're you're you're, you're talking just uh, close on fifty years ago. Yeah, that's I mean, amazing. It was it was, un, it was unheard of, uh, and we I did the same with the choir. Recorded a big choir. We did exactly the same thing, uh, uh, you know, for the uh, Awaken track. You know, so there was always, I think, yes, was at its best. 
um, when it was being pushed, when it pushed itself. Yeah. And unfortunately, and it's the same for a lot of bands, when technology became more powerful and um, sort of overtook uh, musicians, I won't say life became easier, but there were a lot more options. You didn't have to think quite so hard about creating a, uh, a sound. If you thought of a sound you wanted to do, oh, yeah, I could do that on this instrument, or I could do that on this box of tricks. Whereas before it was, how the hell are we going to do that? Right. You were innovating. You were exactly. actually innovating. You were, yeah. you, were, you, were, you were part of the evolution of you're the right. process. And, and you're absolutely right. And technology uh, sort of got rid of innovation to some extent. Yeah. It, well, it made it easier, and there was, I don't know, you... With with the hard work and innovation, kind of like the space program, you yeah. discover things along the way to your objective that could help exactly. later on. And, and absolutely there's right. There's not so much of that anymore. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, we only got a few minutes left, uh, Rick, and and uh, I just wanted to say you gave definitely the most hilarious acceptance speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm sure people always say that to you because really. Um, there's a lot of musicians who take themselves so seriously, and especially in in your particular genre that you're known <laughs> yeah. for in progressive rock or art rock, they're very serious musicians, and yeah. you know, and, and and but you lended some humor to that, and I think it's really it's a much needed thing, especially in that genre of music. Like you don't see Robert Fripp going up there and talking about you know doing the old prostate exam joke, right? You know, I think I think the thing is. Believe it or not, I take my music very seriously. Yes, of course. But yeah. I don't take myself seriously. Yeah. And and the the reason that came about a bit, I mean, I do a lot of comedy in the UK, <laughs> and a, a yeah. lot yeah. Uh, on TV and, and radio and things. And uh, both John and Trev uh, know that I do that over there a lot. And, you know, I've got a lot of respect for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But, you, you know, there's only so many times... You can sit there and hear somebody thank their grandmother, their mother, <laughs> the, the guy who got their first guitar strings, right. you know, and their first drum skin, and and let them rehearse in the garage, and you know. And the truth of the matter is that everybody who's sitting out there knows all those stories anyway. That's true. Yeah. You know, and and all you could hear during the acceptance speeches was was the hum from the audience. Uh, a lot of people, seventeen or thousand, all talking. Yeah, you because know, they want to hear the bands play, and they've heard it all before. Right. right. And and I, I was going to say something sensible, and then <laughs> as we walk, as we walked up, it was Trev. Trev went, "Go on, go for it. Yeah. Go on, nice. Go on, go for it." And I went, "Okay." He said, "Go on." And I said, "Well, I'm not known for doing that over here." He said, "Go for it." <laughs> so I, I went for it. And I thought, "Well, I'll just try a couple of of one lines because I do so much of it in the UK, and I did a couple of one lines, and it people seem to like it. They went, "Oh yeah." Right, and I thought. Right, that's it. Here we go, <laughs> and uh, and I thought it was not meant to be irreverent in any way at all. It was just uh, it was just uh, uh, you know fun. I was proud of getting uh, get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I was I was more proud of of yes getting in as the uh, you know as as, as the music because I think prog rock has been long overlooked in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So so that was really good. So uh, um, I, it seemed that everybody seemed to like it except for the. Uh, for the New York Times and the New York, um, whatever it's called, the Daily or the Post. Oh, whatever them. Yeah, they, <laughs> uh, but they they didn't like it. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm over that now. Well, I thought <laughs> it was much needed, and Bless uh, you, thank and you. then you also in your show when you when you come here to the Wilbur Theater in Boston, 
on the 23rd, you, you, do, you do some comedy. You tell funny stories, right? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of, of anecdotal stories that are a lot, yeah. So I do do a lot of those in between the pieces, yeah. It's good. It's good. It's good fun. I mean, it's a it's a nice sort of contrast if you're playing a serious piece of music, and then you can have a bit of a laugh and a bit yeah. of fun. You know, it, it breaks it up nicely. Well, uh, Rick Wakeman, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. Uh, and uh, the grump, <laughs> it's I love the title. the uh, The grumpy old rock star tour comes to the Wilbur Theater here in Boston. On, on the 23rd. And uh, good luck, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank today. you very much indeed. Thanks. All right. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.